0: Hello and welcome to this Regulatory Transparency Project virtual event. My name is Jack Derwin and I'm assistant director of RTP at the Federalist Society. Today, we're very excited to host a panel discussion titled The Separation of Powers from Washington to Sacramento. To discuss this topic, we have an all-star panel of legal experts who bring a range of views to the discussion. I'll keep these intros very brief now, but feel free to visit recproject.org to view their full bios. David A. Carrillo is lecturer in residence and the founding executive director of the California Constitution Center and University of California, Berkeley School of Law. Before academia, Dr. Carrillo was Deputy Attorney General with the California Department of Justice, Deputy City Attorney in San Francisco, and Deputy District Attorney in Costa County. And additionally, he was a Commercial Litigation Associate in private practice. Luke A. Wake is an attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation, where his work is particular focus on environmental, land use, and constitutional issues. Previously, Luke was a Senior Staff Attorney at the NFIB Small Business Legal Center. John C. Yu is Emmanuel S. Heller Professor of Law, co-faculty director of the Korea Law Center, and director of the Public Law and Policy Program at University of California, Berkeley School of Law. Professor Yu has held a number of positions across government, including at the Department of Justice and at the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee. And our moderator today, Braden Buchek, is director of litigation at the Southeastern Legal Foundation. Prior to his current role, Braden served as vice president of legal affairs at the Beacon Center of Tennessee and as an assistant U.S. attorney for more than nine years. After discussion between our panelists, we'll go to audience Q&A if time allows. So please be thinking of any questions you'd like to ask our speakers. And finally, I'll note that as always, all expressions of opinion in today's program are those of the speakers. With that, Braden, the floor is yours.
1: Thanks, Jack, and thanks for the warm introduction. For those who are unfamiliar, this is a discussion of separation of powers that arise pretty organically from a prior discussion we had on emergency powers during the pandemic. If you've not watched it yet, it's available on um, the Regulatory Transparency Project's website. So let me just begin by orienting everybody. During the pandemic, when uh, people started considering the breadth of government's emergency powers, a term that started refreshingly started to pass from people's lips anew was separation of powers. But of course, the term the government is misleading because under our federalized system of government, we have various layers of government at the local, state, and federal level. So let me begin by asking Professor Yu, just very basically, are state governors subject to the same separation of powers requirements as the federal government, and in practice how closely do federal and state governments resemble each other?
2: Uh, thanks for having me and I'm glad we're really doing this uh, panel and it's uh, really wonderful to be with uh, two people. I've had the pleasure of working with Luke. He's doing a great job for the Pacific Legal Foundation where I'm on the board and uh, David Creo, who we just can't get rid of at Berkeley. He just keeps getting degrees. And then he had to run a center here. We try, he won't go away. So, a
3: lot of that's a, your fault, John.
2: This <laughs> is really a pleasure for me to join them. So, I would say there's nothing in the federal constitution that requires there to be any certain kind of separation of powers uh, arrangement in state constitutions. And the only sort of outer boundary would be the Republican form of government requirement. Which as probably we all know the Supreme Court really has never interpreted and has basically said is a political question up to Congress. And so it's no surprise for example we see states that don't have a unitary executive which where people for example in California elect multiple executive branch members, uh, which creates a problem because you can't remove the governor can't remove them. And then another interesting thing which I don't know if we're going to explore today but I, I just came up in class the other day is. Uh, One wonders, could a state have a parliamentary system, Uh, which no state, if you think about every state copies, basically, the federal separation of powers with a judiciary legislature and executive branch, they're separate. What if a state said, we want to elect our governor in, in the legislature, which was, in fact, what most of the states did between 1776 and our constitution's founding. So. That's just. A, I think that might be the outer limit. It would be interesting if a state tried to have a, a parliamentary system with no independent executive. Um, beyond that, I don't think the Republican form of guarantee clause really um, puts a boundary other than what Congress will choose to enforce.
1: David, do you care to respond to that? And do you want to tackle in practice how closely federal and state governments actually do resemble each other?
2: Sure.
3: Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with uh, John and Luke. And, uh, and John, John is, of course, right. Uh, the Republican form of guarantee, Republican form of government guarantee clauses is probably the only real limit the US Supreme Court has, has expressly held on more than one occasion that federal separation of powers provisions do not apply to the states. They're free to, you know, within a very broad limitation, design their governments as they wish. Uh, what's interesting is that, uh, aside from the, the early pre-1787 experiments that John referenced, Um, The states largely after that fell into a a pattern of of largely not copying but replicating in broad terms the tripartite system of government that uh, the federal government was expressly designed to have. So it's interesting that even though they don't have to, and there are some significant variations, that the states largely do fit within the four corners of the federal government design with three branches of government. Um, it's interesting that John mentioned that one of his students was thinking about California having a parliamentary form of government. One of my students a couple of years ago uh, wrote his paper and sub- subsequently published it arguing that California could have a parliamentary form of government without violating the guarantee clause. Uh, I think that's a pretty interesting question. Um, so, so the variation tends to be not, you know, we have five branches of government or one branch of government, you know, other than direct democracy, which some people argue is a fourth branch of government. What you tend to see is variation within the design of each of the three branches. You know, so John mentioned the divided executive. California is a good example of that. We have nine separately elected independent constitutional officers. There's pretty big variation in the way states design their judicial branches, particularly with regard to selection. It's very common in states for judges to be elected uh, or to have appointments like California does with no legislative confirmation. Uh, Legislatures have have some variation. Uh, I think three or four states um, at one point adopted a unicameral legislature. Nebraska is the only one that currently does. Uh, John's home state of Pennsylvania tried it at one point, didn't last very long. Um, So what you tend to see is is variation on the theme of a three-branch government.
1: Thank you. And let me let Luke chance to get in there. Luke, do you agree that the constitutional guarantee of a Republican form of government is really the only restriction the federal constitution places on how states can design their government?
4: Yeah, I, I agree with with that, what's been said already on that. I mean, and the fact also that the guarantee clause has not been held to to have any real meaningful effect because it's you know, continually, when it's been brought up in the past, uh, been been said to be a political question. I believe there was an opinion in say, 1992 where you had an O'Connor concurrence that suggested, well, maybe there might be some uh, uh, application of the guarantee clause that wouldn't run afoul of the, the political question doctrine. But uh, generally speaking, even that seems to be a toothless um, <laughs> restriction unless you had uh, a state that sort of um, set itself up as, as opposed to having sort of a, uh, a lawmaking functions done by a legislative sort of body. Instead, uh, said, said we're just going to have a czar, or something to that effect. Well, then, then you know, at least in theory, the Republican guarantees clause would would then kick in. But um, other than maybe our experiment with uh, you know, COVID over the last uh, <laughs> couple of years, we haven't been in that territory. And, and one could you know, debate about whether or not we've actually de- descended into, at least for a period, autocracy in 2020 and 2021. But uh, those are certainly interesting separation of powers questions. And as you noted, uh, why people have really given some added focus to separation of powers issues that maybe they hadn't thought about um, in a long time.
1: Luke, since you just followed up everybody there, let me give you another one. How far have the states gone with the design experiments? Are there any unique aspects of states in their design structure that's worth mentioning?
4: Well, I, I mean, the others have already noted you know, a handful of differences. What I, I would note is that in practice, uh, you you see uh, sort of variations uh, in, in, in the way states a, a approach specific constitutional doctrines um, and uh, for, for example, you will at times see state courts uh, you know, saying that um, that you, you, you have a, viol- a violation for something that uh, wouldn't necessarily be a violation a, a, under the federal doctrine uh, and, and vice versa uh, you know, so it, it is it, you have to look at the specific doctrine in question. Um, but I, I, I do think it's important, though, you know, to ground this conversation with looking to the, you know, the uniformity that I, I has been noted already, and there seems to be a lot of commonality across the grounds, and that is because all of these states uh, do share uh, sort of a common. Uh, history in terms of um, the, the sort of original uh, conceptions of uh, sort of the, the functions of government, our, our legal tradition, uh, going, looking back to John Locke and, and our sort of collective experience uh, with establishing the very concept, I think, of constitutional governance in the modern stent sense during, say, the, the English uh, uh, revolutions uh, and, and where, where parliament ascended legislative supremacy, over the king and 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 those those uh, basic tenets, I think necessarily were you know important to the founding fathers of the federal constitution, and 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 I think for good reason uh, found themselves in, in in the state constitutions, which you know again share that common ancestry.
1: David, you you referenced already some of the unique design features of California's structure. All three of you are Californians. We don't have to be shy about keeping this kind of California-centric, I'm the only one who's not there, but uh, do, do you see anything unique in the limits of California's uh, constitutional structures that it has placed on itself or have you mentioned? Yeah,
3: what's what's been interesting about the way uh, state constitutions have evolved in the last couple hundred years is that um, s- some changes that either could have been but weren't designed into the federal constitution or were proposed for the federal constitution, but ultimately not adopted because it's a very static document, have found their way into the states. Um, And I'm thinking of a few things in particular. One is in the 1800s, there was a running debate about uh, the executive veto uh, and various proposals of changing the executive veto in the federal constitution failed, Um, but they found traction in the states. Uh, The Confederate constitution, for example, originated the idea of the line item veto, which subsequently got adopted in in a number of states. the weakening or changing uh, of the federal executive veto uh, never happened, obviously, uh, at the federal level. Uh, Cong- uh, U.S. Supreme Court at one point held that the line-eye veto uh, was unconstitutional for the federal executive. Um, the, other, the other big uh, change direction happened in the 1900s, which, wa- which related to judicial review. Um, a number of states adopted a proposal that, again, was you know, talked about but never, never implemented at the federal level, which is making judicial review much more difficult. Um, that happened in California by uh, by initiative on a couple of occasions, uh, California's voters changed the death penalty, uh, they changed uh, criminal procedure review, uh, they changed same-sex marriage, all of those were, were as a result of, of you know, responses to judicial, to judicial review decisions. Um, the other specific thing that I was going to mention that um, isn't in the federal constitution, but is in the constitution of 40 states is the topic we're discussing today, which is separation of powers. I think there's 40 states that have in their constitutions the kind of express separation of powers provision that California has in, in its. It's only implied in the federal constitution. So, so these, these are three good examples of ideas that either could have been included in the federal constitution, but weren't, or, or were subsequently discussed as changes that perhaps should be made to the federal constitution, but, but never were because it's so difficult to change. But the states being more dynamic with their constitutions either included them in the, in the beginning or just wrote them in later.
1: Professor Yu, this next question is for you, and this, of course, comes amidst the backdrop of uh, the use of executive authority at the both federal and state level in response to the uh, pandemic. But do you agree that states like California would have more latitude to act at the executive level in response to an emergency without it being a separation of powers concerned?
2: It's a really interesting question, uh, Braden, because um, it would depend on whether you thought what you thought the the, the meaning of the executive power was in state constitutions, and uh, as you know, famously, the federal constitution has no emergency power clause. But when presidents have acted during emergencies, like the Civil War, for example, uh, presidents have looked to the executive power as giving them, <clears throat> excuse me, some uh, authority to respond immediately uh, to events. Uh, and very famously, remember Lincoln and his special message to Congress on July 4th made that claim and also claimed he was executing the laws to prevent secession, the highest of which was the Constitution itself. And I think the Supreme Court ultimately blessed that approach in the prize cases a few years after the beginning of the Civil War. It, it seems to me you know states, as David just said, states have these separation of power clauses and so the interesting question would be do state constitutions when they adopt that clause, and depending on the time when they adopted the clause, are they incorporating an understanding of emergency powers into their constitutions that come through the executive power clause? Now, I would note, since you mentioned California, I've also looked at the laws of a few other states. Um, most other states that have been acting during this pandemic, have uh, the governors are acting pursuant to statutory authority. Uh, according to there's a, there's a there's a in California, we have something called the uh, emer, I think it's the, called the Emergency Services Act. This is called the ESA. Emergency. Yeah, yes, yeah, the acronym. It's uh, not that different from other states, where um, the governor is given the delegated right to declare an emergency. And actually, what's interesting, uh, Braden, in comparison to the sort of federal presidential emergency authorities that have been claimed over the years, these statutes uh, tend to be more detailed. They tend to be more detailed about what an emergency is. Uh, people are always surprised to learn. I think that the Supreme Court's never defined what an emergency is. Um, some uh, you can imagine some of these statutes are much more uh, detailed in terms of when the governor has to go back to the legislature to essentially go back to the well for emergency powers. Um, they're also, I think, a little more detailed about what the governor can do. Now, on the other hand, and as I'll close with this, the thing that I think makes it more of a threat to individual liberty, perhaps, and what the federal president can do is that the state government is not limited in its powers vis-a-vis the individual the way the federal constitution is. The federal constitution is a limited enumerated power. So there's a, just a limit on what the federal government, even acting through a president during an emergency, can do. Whereas a state government, as you all know, has the police power. So in our system, we just assume states have all powers over the individual and events, uh, entities within its territory that are not limited by the Bill of Rights and the state uh, constitution. So if a state emergency powers law, like California's, for example, just gives the governor the police power during an emergency, to me, that means that the governor actually has greater authority for good or ill and a president even has during an emergency when it just comes to the relationship of the government to the individual in our daily lives so i i know plf i guess this is introducing it to luke i know plf has a project working on trying to get states uh, to amend these emergency service laws in various ways to make sure that for example the governor of california can't say i have the police power for two years or three years or even longer until we don't see a COVID virus out there anymore, which could be decades. Uh, when, how do you stop that from happening or at least get the um, uh, the legislature and even the people back involved into when they want to keep giving the executive these kinds of uh, unusual powers? Well, thank,
1: thank you for that response. I definitely want Luke to jump in there. And Luke, really, wants to. One of, one of the important <laughs> yeah. things that I want to pull out of that was the police power originates with the states. And that's an important distinction between the emergency exercise of emergency powers that happen at both the federal and state level. So go ahead and respond to Professor Yu, but I'd really like you to take up the the police powers point and how that is significant.
4: Yeah, and it's a really important point, because as you just noted, the police power resides with the, the state itself. But um, but in California, <laughs> and uh, a handful of other states, through their Emergency Management Acts, that actually the, the statutes actually expressly confer all police power of the state uh, to the governor. And so there's there's a very significant separation of powers question as to whether or not uh, the legislature can lawfully delegate all of its police powers. And, and of course, you know, I'm arguing in our litigation at PLF the answer is no. Um, the police power uh, it, it entails. No, there, I would I would argue that police power entails two functions. one is the power to actually execute law that is that is in laws already in effect but there's a sort of a power to execute and enforce the law which I legisla- the, the governor could exercise that that aspect of the police power no question but the the aspect of the police power that entails the legislative function, the power to actually make affirmative positive law that is reserved. To the legislature and, and the California uh, Constitution, as a number of other states, uh, as as David noted a moment ago, is express ex- explicit expressly saying you know if you've you've been de- delegated if you've been given emergency uh, executive powers under their state constitution you cannot exercise legislative powers, and 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 it has the same operative language with regard if you've been given you know, legislative powers you can't operate into executive powers. Uh, And so that leads, I think, to a very strong inference that, if anything, uh, the federal, uh, the California Constitution, at least properly construed, should be more protective uh, of of this principle than even the federal Constitution. Uh, One, one, I suppose, could argue about it functionally. I think the tests operatively uh, under the non-delegation doctrine are uh, roughly the same, although they're articulated in different ways. But but backing up for a moment. I do think it's it's important to address that question about, you know, whether or not the governors actually have any sort of innate, uh, inherent power uh, to just to respond to an emergency and and to make actual laws that are, you know, binding upon individuals and, and our, our liberties and, and I think the answer it has to be no on that that's and, and I think that's reflected in the fact that you have um, ubiquitously throughout the states legislation um, conferring emergency powers but again the the, the question in, in those statutes and, and again those are ubiquitous uh, they they're broad delegations generally speaking uh, to to exercise uh, at least some some aspect of the police power Uh, a few states actually say all police power but the question is how broad of a conferral can you actually give without running afoul of these separation of powers principles and you know the states a number of the states have been largely deferential to the governors during that time period but uh, there's there's two solutions to that. One, uh, you know, we continue continue to litigate this question for one in California, but the other solution is the, the legislative route, which John Yu has noted. And and you know, Kentucky, for example, is a state that has adopted legislation to uh, respond to this problem by putting you know objective temporal limits, basically once the legislature is back in session. There's a there's a very small finite period where the legislature either approves the emergency orders or not, and if they don't, then then they're extinguished. And by the way, we we brought suit against Governor Bashir when he tried to uh, challenge uh, the the constitutionality of the legislature's uh, attempt to write uh, in his powers that way too. So this is a continuing issue we're we're watching throughout the, the country.
1: David, I can tell you want to talk. Let's, let's hear it. <laughs>
4: um well I, w- I was
3: thinking about the discussion we had last time about um about the delegation issue and um i luke started out framing this uh in, with two questions one is the executive power to execute the law and i don't think anybody would disagree that if there's a law in the books uh that it's within the governor's executive power to go and make that happen uh, the but the second thing that he referenced is the legislature's policy making power and as john mentioned a minute ago the California Emergency Services Act um, vests the governor in emergency with the police power of the state, which arguably includes the legislature's policymaking power. To put it in colloquial terms, in, in this context, the, the policymaking power exercising the police power means what are we gonna do? How should we respond to this emergency? And the, I think that the definitional question that everyone has been struggling with in California and in the nation is, um, is it enough for the legislature to decide that the policy of the state is we want the governor to decide what to do and sort this out? Or does the legislature have to make further policy decisions and say, well, we're going to decide that we're going to have an emergency response and here's what that's going to look like. Now, governor, go and execute that. Um, So that gets into the delegation discussion that we had previously. Um, And I think that the the way California courts have handled this, um, I, and here I agree with Luke, it's, it's a little counterintuitive because you would think that with California uh, and a lot of other states having express separation of powers provisions, you, you would think that that would mean that you'd get California courts uh, imposing a more strict separation of powers doctrine, but it's actually the other way around. California and a lot of other states have a, a looser separation of powers doctrine, um, and it flows not from this express separation of powers provision in the state constitution, it flows and said for the nature of the state government. The legislature of California can do everything that it's not expressly prohibited from doing. Well, then you'd loop back to article three, section three. Okay, well, it says right there that you can't exercise anyone else's powers. That then gets back to the definitional question. Well, whose power is it to decide what the policy of the state is in responding to an emergency? And is it enough for the legislature to say California's policy is for the governor to go and sort that out until the emergency is over? So you always have to struggle with de- this definitional question. And, and you've seen this play out in the litigation that, that Luke mentioned. Um, we're, we're still struggling with this. And I, I certainly agree with John that at some point, uh, a chronic condi- you know, an emergency turns into a chronic or an endemic condition. Um, again, we have a definitional question. Where is that point and how do we figure that out when you no longer need emergency executive power, and you can deal with this as an ongoing condition. That's a really tough question to answer.
1: Thank you for that. And um, I want to I make sure we have adequate time in here because I want to spend a little bit talking about judicial challenges. Of course, there's been no shortage of those at both the federal and state level. Um, and the courts have been all across the map and how they've treated executive power. Um, we've seen successful challenges at the federal level, for instance, notably to the eviction moratorium from the Centers for Disease Control, the vaccine mandate that came down through OSHA. These are all species of separation of powers cases. So my question that I'll start with Professor Yu with is, does the federal court approach to executive power, is that different from how state courts would view a state court action? If so, how do these overlap?
2: But uh, this is another interesting thing is um, uh, when I have uh, dipped into the state court literature on separation of powers, and I've mostly done this in the area of the non-delegation doctrine, uh, I see a lot of state Supreme Courts uh, just sort of borrowing the federal approach, and there's no reason they have to. <laughs> in fact, as David suggested, Lucas suggested, you, know, you would expect the separation of powers maybe to be more powerful in the state level, because you have these clauses, which say separation of powers, you have much more uh, detailed thought and consideration by the founders of those documents because they've come later about maybe how to resolve disputes between the branches, or maybe they want the disputes to be uh, more more pronounced. Uh, Maybe they want more fighting between the branches because they don't trust the government, but um, Uh, You know, State constitutions can be changed more often, so there's more course corrections you can put into it than you've had with the federal one. But but surprisingly to me, uh, when you, for example, so uh, Peter Walson and I at AEI had just issued a book about the non-delegation doctrine with collection of essays. And there was a really interesting essay in it about state constitutional non-delegation doctrine cases. And so this argument was looked at all the state constitution. A lot of state constitutions they just basically do what the federal judges, what the Supreme Court doesn't, to the point where they, in fact, cite U.S. Supreme Court opinions and frameworks when they address state law, for, which is really the reverse of the way the system should work. Or if you like David's system, Luke's is talking about, well, we can have experimentation at the state level. You, know, you can have differences. The last thing you should have then is state courts in some way saying, even though we don't have to, we're just going to borrow federal doctrinal law to address this. But there were a few states that do have uh, what seemed to be more uh, aggressive non-delegation doctrine tests than what the US Supreme Court has, which is, I have to confess, sadly, is not very hard to do, because the US Supreme Court just doesn't really enforce a non-delegation doctrine uh, right now, although they might start doing it starting this term. So you would expect to see a lot more diversity of separation of powers Review in state courts, but you, I think you don't see it. I, I, I'm puzzled by it, actually.
1: Uh, great point, David. Do you agree? I mean, should state courts be relying on federal jurisprudence when it comes to delegation separation of powers?
3: Uh, arguably not. If if you want stricter or more aggressive non-delegation, you you know, as John said, U.S. Supreme Court has not been particularly aggressive with that. So that that would be the worst thing to borrow from. It, it's it's also arguably. Uh, counterintuitive to borrow from federal law, which doesn't have, doesn't rely on a textual separation of powers provision in in its constitution. So if it's, it's the classic, even if you're a person who believes in lockstepping, which is uh, locking uh, your state jurisprudence to federal jurisprudence, even if you generally believe believe in that, separation of powers should be the one place where you would make an exception for that, or it's the one thing that blows a hole in that theory because because of your textual provision. So you should be wanting a stricter separation of powers under your state constitution. So in that case, why would you borrow from federal law? Uh, And and John's absolutely right. I was looking at a case before we got on called United Auburn, um, where where a justice of the California Supreme Court borrowed the Youngstown tripartite framework in discussing uh, or, or in analyzing the governor's powers. Why would you borrow a framework that describes the federal president's powers when you're analyzing the California governor's powers? They're completely different offices from completely different governments designed by completely different documents. One of them has an express declaration of powers provision and the other one doesn't. Why would you borrow that? So it's interesting that you have this dynamic where, where state courts do borrow from federal law. And it's arguably, I think in Luke's view, probably to the detriment of the doctrine so why I if if there's one place where you wouldn't borrow from federal law, I would think it would be this one.
1: Luke, he just put his name in your mouth. Do you agree? <laughs> Did he accurately summarize your views?
4: Um, yeah, well, I think I mean, it's look it's certain certainly as a litigator, um, you know, when when you. Have a federal opinion that you <laughs> you think is, is helpful uh, that we'll use it. So uh, you know, for one, in our ghost calls case, we're we're arguing that uh, the sliding scale analysis that has been applied in, in federal courts uh, should should apply. Certainly, when we're talking, and and that that was the sort of analysis that was applied in this Michigan Supreme Court case that actually did find a, a violation of non-delegation doctrine. So I mean, you point to any authority that that actually helps your case as a litigator, right? But um, but the point is well taken, and I, and I, I, I mean I do agree that there are some you know, no, very notable examples of state courts actually applying, I think more rigorous uh, non-delegation analysis. I mean, if you want to see examples of case, um, statutes actually being invalidated at, at, you know in, in the last you know 40, 50 years, you can find those uh, at the, in some, some of the state's um, supreme courts across the country. Florida stands out as an example. Uh, but I would also note that we have even here in California, which you know, one might have thought was a lost cause and you know raising these sort of uh, constitutional arguments, uh, cases that, that remain good law and, that have found violations of the non-delegation doctrine or that have narrowly construed statutes uh, to avoid uh, non-delegation problems, and so I think the answer uh, it, 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 that certainly that I'm pushing in, in our litigation here is that we just need to actually enforce the, these these constitutional precepts that, that the California Supreme Court has already spoken to. But, uh, but, Braden, I do want to just you know briefly make sure that we're you know, s- touching back to the question you posed to John a moment ago about you know the, the st- distinction between the way the federal courts have you know treated pandemic-related cases concerning delegations of authority to the executive branch versus uh, what the states have done, because we have seen, I think, again, with the exception of the Michigan Supreme Court, I noted a moment ago, some very significant differences in the outcome. And, And that, I think, largely is, well, the states were awfully deferential in practice to what the executive branch was doing, and there's maybe a number of reasons why that might be. But um, one, I, I would note, is that at the federal level, we have developed the, now this uh, concrete idea of a I think major, major question about what is a major question, but this major questions doctrine has really uh, solidified in a more concrete way in the last couple of years. Um, And and it has origins, I think, going way back, but the major questions doctrine, I think, is is the lens through which, you know, one should be looking at uh, significant separation of powers questions at the federal level and, of course, the non-delegation doctrine, again, as a backstop with a, a canon of avoidance argument there. Um, similar arguments, certainly you can press it at the state level, but my sense is that the states uh, have not developed the concept of a major question doctrine in the same way. Certainly, they they employ uh, canons of avoidance uh, where the non-delegation arguments you know are presented, but in general, my sense was that the state courts, by and large, failed to take the non-delegation doctrine as seriously as the federal courts did. Uh, and again, even those cases, they weren't expressly decided on non-de- non-delegation grounds. You look at the OSHA uh, vaccine mandate case, for example, the eviction moratorium case. The Supreme Court, they were, were not deciding on non-delegation grounds, but I think the non-delegation doctrine was, was very much present. And 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 their thinking as sort of a background principle, and and, and supporting the hydraulic pressure to uh, avoid a uh, serious separation of powers problem.
1: Well, I mean, you've you've all seemed to agree that you find it odd that state courts are doing so much incorporation of federal jurisprudence, given the fact that there's just such relevant legal distinctions. Um, I'd like to ask if you guys, I'm just curious as to your views as to why you think federal or state courts have that tendency to fall back on federal jurisprudence. Um, Professor Yu, do you have any thoughts on that?
2: I, I think part of it is um, legal education. It's our fault um, because we don't really offer, I think, in law schools uh, um, systematic classes on state constitutional law. Um, I think we actually do at Berkeley, where right? we have one on the California Constitution. And uh, I bet that, um, I mean, I'd be interested. We could definitely do a survey whether uh, the leading school in each state offers a class on the state constitution of their state, putting aside just state constitutions as a whole, but our students who are graduating from schools learning the state constitutional law of their own states, which arguably when you go out into practice is probably gonna come up much more often than federal constitutional law in your own private practices. So I think that's part of it. A second thing, again, this is very interesting because uh, for you know Fed Courts junkies, it goes back to uh, Hunter versus Martin. Let's see, right about, or sorry, Martin versus Hunters. I always get them mixed. I don't know who's less seeing from who. Martin versus Hunters. Let's see, you might remember there's a discussion there by Justice Story about the difference between federal judges and state judges, and he had said at the time. Uh, You know, the reason why we expect federal judges to be the final interpreters of federal laws, not because federal judges are better, um, but just that they specialize in federal law and state judges specialize in state law. And I've always wondered whether that was no longer true because state judges themselves don't, you know, they think of themselves in the hierarchy of federal law. And so I think they're less, I think they're reluctant to experiment, on state law issues in the constitutional arena, because there's, I bet that you have similarities in f- uh, federal and state constitutional law. When it comes to other things like free speech and due process, and I actually think this is a disappointing way that federalism has worked out. Because in theory, state constitutional law should be it should be different. than it could be more protective. It could be less protective. But it should, this should be doctrinally different. So I do I think I detect that state. Supreme courts, maybe in state judiciaries, they may have a certain lack of confidence in themselves to develop robust tests and instead rely or revert back too easily to uh, federal law.
1: Yeah, this is you're really making this part of a much broader trend, you know, and that being the tendency of state courts to look to federal courts and federal jurisprudence to intercede even on matters of purely state constitutional law. I mean, I, you know, I can tell you on the part of a litigator who's litigated any fair number of state constitutional law claims, if you take them to state courts, the state courts will grasp for whatever a federal court has said on that particular doctrine, and if you take them to federal court, the federal courts say, well, we don't opine on state constitutions, and you end up in this sort of limbo land where nobody seems to know, for instance, what the Tennessee Constitution has to say about anything, but David, you, you commendably are teaching classes on state constitution I, w- I want to privately congratulate you on that thank you what what are your thoughts on why federal courts are or state courts are so reliant on federal jurisprudence
3: you know the uh uh the originators of modern state constitutional law uh guys like john dinan robert williams and alan Tarr have, have looked at this and others have looked at this extensively and they, and they break it down into categories um a lot of it has to do with whether a state, uh, either by design or by decision, locksteps its state constitutional doctrine to federal law. Um, sometimes it's up to a state supreme court to decide whether or not to do that. Um, and and so you see you see some conscious decisions to do that. Sometimes across the board. Sometimes on particular issues. Uh, I mentioned I mentioned that sometimes the voters make that decision for you. Uh, in California, they did with uh, Proposition Eight, not not the same-sex marriage Proposition Eight, the other one. Um, so there are a number of explanations for this. Um, sometimes you get judges who wind up on state courts, and, and they're from the federal bench, and so they, they have a tendency to reach for what's familiar. Uh, that's been true in a few instances on the California Supreme Court in recent years. People with uh, people arrive with a federal law background, and, and so there, there's probably this unconscious, subconscious uh, tendency to, re- to reach for what you know. Um, some Some people arrive with a judicial philosophy that um, speech means speech, regardless of whether it's in a state constitution or a federal constitution. Uh, there's an argument about whether that's true. Um, it's probably wrong because most of the individual liberties we have originated in state constitutions. Uh, the guys who wrote them into the Bill of Rights uh, brought them from the state constitutions that they had already written. Um, so sometimes you get lockstepping by default. Sometimes it's imposed. Um, sometimes it's, it's it's done unconsciously. Sometimes it's done consciously. Um, but I, I think the the bottom line is, as John said, you, you have this very disappointing anti-federalist uh, situation where state supreme courts do by and large have a tendency to rely on federal law. And, and that's largely to the detriment of the individual source of liberty or the distinct individual source of liberty uh, that their state constitutions uh, can and should be providing. So I, I agree that this is a sad state of affairs, but it, it is what it is.
1: Luke, what's your explanation? How do you make sense of it all? Let us know.
4: Yeah, well, I, I I mean, I've had a couple of thoughts. One is, especially I think in this space when we're talking about uh, delegations, I think the inclination to want to be deferential uh, and to just latch on to a very deferential uh, standard that the federal courts have, have, have developed and that I certainly hope the federal courts reconsider uh, with time, perhaps by reading uh, the, the book, John, you just mentioned, But, um, so I I think that possibly one explanation could be, uh, maybe the the legal cynic here, uh, (laughs) that to some extent, uh, there's an issue with the fact that you have state court judges are appointed by, uh, in some cases, the very people who are, um, you know, they're, they're, they're reviewing emergency orders from right I mean so it, I think it's very difficult uh and and they they stand retention elections I, I I can only speculate as to what extent those sort of factors might have played into the difference in the outcomes between the state and federal uh courts and how they evaluated pandemic responsive approaches I don't know uh if lifetime tenure would, would have mattered uh, but but it's something to speculate on but on a um at a more sort of doctrinal level, you thinking down, drilling down into actually say, let's talk about the non-delegation doctrine for, for, since that I think is the center of uh, the, the emergency power stuff we've been talking about. Well, you know, while at the same time, while I, we've all agreed that, you know, we should give some weight to the fact that, the California constitution and these other state constitutions are explicit on this point that we're going to have a division between the strict division between the, the different branches, whereas it's only implied in the federal constitution. Uh, that certainly, I think, at least should be pushed back against uh, the arguments that I've seen from, say, the attorney general saying, well, the California constitution is weaker on separation of powers. but But when we really drill down to the sort of fundamentally what we're talking about when we're talking about non-delegation doctrine, the the essential premises of the the, the legislature or the Congress makes law and that power can't be given away to, you know, in a blank check fashion to some other entity. Uh, We're really getting into sort of um, legal philosophical territory uh, and, you know, expounding on John Locke and so forth, right? But I mean, how do you, how do you distill that that concept uh, down into a legal test. And in practice, what you see is that the states have uh, largely distilled it in a way uh, that is different uh, than the intelligible principle test that the, that the Congress, that the Supreme Court has given us. Uh, and that they, the, the state courts tend to say that there are three different tests and you've got to pass each one. Uh, the legislature has to decide fundamental policy. The legislature has to provide Adequate standards, and there have to be adequate procedural or adequate safeguards. Um, The latter one, I think, that that probably actually is more appropriately viewed as a due process test. But my point is uh, that the state courts have at least articulated the tests slightly differently. Now, in practice, the the outcome is is largely the same, and I'm not really sure what to make of that, but. But, but the fact of the matter is we, we do have distinct tests. And I think if we actually rigorously applied those distinct tests at the state court level, uh, you, you can and, and sometimes do get uh, sort of better decisions. And, and so maybe it is the fact that maybe, maybe the, the federal courts ought to be looking to, to the states if they want to see models of, and so, in some instances, of you know, successful non-delegation claims and how you might think about uh, reformulating the doctrine itself.
3: Could I follow up on one point? Please.
4: Uh, Luke just gave me a a, a framing idea.
3: Um, it, it's long been argued that the, the US Supreme Court Im- imposes a, a federalism discount. And when you when you define an individual right nationwide, that the there's there are incentives to do so at the low the lowest possible level or at a lower level than you might otherwise do so. State constitutions obviously have no such limitations. They they can deviate upwards from the federal floor to the extent that they want and, and protect rights maximally. So I, I would argue that um, anyone who tries to enhance individual liberty by relying on their state constitution is serving a federalism function, a very important one and And arguably, that's you know that's that's the the purpose of you know not, not just our discussion here, but you know the federalist society itself. it's It's to seek individual liberty and enhance federalism. And I, I think that relying on and advancing state constitutionalism, it, it serves both of those functions in in a very important way.
1: Well, um, Luke, as you well know, there was no shortage of um, challenges brought uh, to the exercise of emergency powers at the state level. The vast majority of these did not succeed. However, there were notable exceptions in Michigan and Wisconsin. I know you're familiar with both of those. Why did those cases succeed or other state constitutional law challenges failed?
4: Well, I mean, it's notable that you had, you know, a handful of Supreme Court cases, uh, Kentucky, Connecticut, uh, are really the the, the big ones that come to mind that actually definitively said these just opened into delegations of emergency power are okay. Uh, And I think a lot of cases um, ultimately didn't, you know, make their way all the way to the state Supreme Court on that very question, because uh, there were mootness issues that, that came about, but with regard to Michigan, Michigan stands out, I think, as an, as an example of really, you know, how courts really should be, you know, again, I'm talking about taking non-delegation doctrine seriously, I mean, read the Michigan Supreme Court's decision, uh, invalidating the emergency powers of the Governor's Act there, uh, and, and that, that's, the, the court really emphasized the, the, the this sliding scale uh, concept, the, the, the broader the, the scope of the authority conferred, that uh, the, the more uh, stringently they were going to evaluate that and, and ultimately f- found that when you give away uh, even a substantial portion of the police power, uh, that that is a violation of non-delegation doctrine. And, and so that, I think that st- is a stand-up model uh, meanwhile, you know in in Wisconsin, there Wisconsin stood out very early on is, it, because the S- Supreme Court there held uh, that there were you know the firm temporal limits on the governor's emergency powers actually, you know, meant something and actually cut off the, his emergency powers. Uh, at that point, the state then shifted to trying to do things through uh, basically this the state health department or what, whatever the agency would be in, in Wisconsin. And you had uh, thereafter a follow up another case uh, called uh, Wisconsin Legislature versus Palm, where where separation of powers issues were were squarely presented. Uh, and there, they are the, case, the the court invalidated um, by a narrow decision, it was four three. Uh, it was a statewide emergency order uh, from from the Department of Health Services there. Um, and, and they they held that there was um, it was procedurally <laughs> invalid, but the the non-delegation doctrine uh, was was invoked very seriously as a, as an avoidance uh, doctrine to uh, as sort of a background principle moving in that direction. And I would also note, Now that the Wisconsin Supreme Court has another case pending uh, where they looks like they are going to squarely reconsider uh, the state's approach to non-delegation doctrine uh, in in general and specifically uh, evaluating maybe squarely on the constitutional grounds this time, uh, another emergency order, this one uh, done at the local level.
1: Those are fascinating and underreported cases um, that are not well known just because they exist in state court. Uh, but Professor Yu, before we get to questions, I wanted to ask you, you know, do you think that there's something about the institutional structure or composition of the state or in federal judiciary that skews state courts towards a more deferential approach?
2: I don't think there's anything about the way uh, state courts are designed. Uh, in fact, you would think, and here's something I guess we didn't talk about when we when we mentioned how different state constitutions, federal constitutions are, is the election of the judiciaries. Is a really big difference is that you have a um, you know, sort of constant replenishment of the judiciary by reference to democratic approval. Um, I mean, I, w- I would have thought I would have thought that would have been incentive to produce even more diverse state laws on state constitution, but maybe it has the opposite effect. Maybe I'm just speculating, but maybe it's the case that having an elected judiciary, as I guess it's about what more than two thirds of the states do now, um, which may produce judges who um, are shorter term, they haven't been on the bench that long, they may not stay that long. Um, Maybe that means that they're not as uh, well uh, prepared in terms of state law, and so as others have said, it's just easy you know, if you have a separation powers question just to look at federal law, um, because it's already you know, formed and extensively debated and discussed in the scholarship, and there's lots of cases, and it's just so sort of easy to, and they're familiar with that, especially if they're being elected uh, to the judiciary, not as you know, put like a constitutional law specialists of their state, but they're getting elected to the judiciary because they're well-known local politicians, or they were, uh, practitioners and so they didn't really have a lot of familiarity with constitutional law at all. maybe that I, maybe that's what it is as the elected judiciaries uh, but I otherwise I can't think of why uh, you know stick. the other interesting thing is the state judiciaries themselves are organized like the federal judiciary. I don't know why that would have to be either you look at other countries and they have very different ways of organizing the judiciary but our judicial systems, you know trial appeals, you know non-subject matter based are primarily uh, in most states are like, the federal system. So maybe all this mimicking of the federal system in the judiciary leads them also to copy federal law.
3: California's used to be different. Uh, it, it, currently has a, a three-level, uh, system that mimics the, the federal system, but it, it, California has basically tried every kind of judicial branch organization known to man. Um, so it's, it hasn't always been that way, but, but John's also a hundred percent right about, um, other, other state constitutional scholars have, have studied this question of why state courts um, aren't as bold as you would think that they would be. And, and it basically comes down to caution. It's, it's just safer, is the argument, uh, to rely on federal law, because when you have to fo- face the voters, it's a lot better to argue in the well, I had to rule this way because that's what the U.S. Supreme Court says versus having to defend your own independent analysis. That's
4: the theory anyway. Well, oh, and if I can just briefly note, you know, Ilya Soman, I think, has done some great scholarship on takings, uh, takings issues. And, and he's noted in some of his, his scholarship there that there is in, in that context, when you're a judge asked to like decide that the state is actually liable to having to pay compensation for you know, take a regulatory taking, that there's there's tremendous in- incentive as, as a practical matter to rule for the government. Um, and so. Yeah, you know, I I raised this uh, this question about you know where the, the election of the, the judges might might be a factor. Uh, I think especially when when we're dealing with something that um, you know there there was you know a lot, a lot of public sentiment about at, at the time. Um, it's you know, at least possible that the, the possibility of <laughs> retention elections uh, in some shape or form may have affected the way, the way judges thought about these things in, in a more deferential manner than, say, the federal courts.
3: Yeah, I think there's pretty good empirical evidence on that, that on the spectrum from you have to face the v- voters every few years to life appointments, um, there, there's a pretty clear direct relationship between the tenure of your appointment and the boldness of your, of your opinions. Um, it, this isn't my research. Other people have studied this, but it's it's pretty clear. And there's pretty good good point examples, like in California, um, people have argued that the California Supreme Court has has been a lot less bold than it used to be before the 1986 election, which saw three justices of the court evicted f- from their seats. Got to face the voters.
1: I hope you'll circulate that research at some point yeah. in time. I'd like to see it. Sure. Um, Let's get a couple questions in. And by the way, just a reminder to listeners: if you'd like to be called upon, you can raise your hand, and we can switch the camera over to you. You can also put it in the chat. We've got a couple questions in the chat. We'll see how many we can get to. First question is a hypothetical: If a state wanted to adopt a truly parliamentary form of government, which the panelists seem to think that they would be allowed to do, at least from a federal constitutional perspective, what would happen if there was a vote of no confidence were to take place? And the appointed head decided to dissolve the government and call snap elections. That would have consequences for the union as a whole. Would that pose a Commerce Clause problem if, you know, for instance, that happened in California? It could, in theory, paralyze a large chunk of the country if a parliamentary system were to exist and then be dissolved. Anybody want to respond there?
3: Uh, I'll go first if nobody else wants to. Um... First, I want to recharacterize a little bit. I'm, I'm not sure that all three of us agree that California could have a parliamentary form of government. I, I think we do agree that that's an interesting question. I, I would love to see how that played out in practice. Um, and and it's certainly been the case that in, in instances of the past, uh, California's government ha- has been effectively paralyzed. Uh, you know, For example, the legislature failed to pass the budget and the state economy is frozen for months and you can't pay you know, payoff on contracts or state employee paychecks. The this, this state is paralyzed because the legislature can't agree on a redistricting map. You know, there've been another wave of instances where California's existing Republican form of government has, has just been locked up and, and un, unable to, to function effectively. The legislature was out of session for months in the early part of the pandemic because they couldn't agree to meet remotely. So, so you already do see some practical versions of, of the kind of problem that you'd get if, if, uh, if a parliamentary government in California collapsed um i you know california hasn't fallen into the sea and the nation still stands so I, I think we could survive that
1: anybody else want to jump in there or want to move to the next question yeah. I'm,
2: ahead, I'm just, you. Uh, yeah. this is a a, a um, common criticism of parliamentary systems in general is that they're uh more they're unstable compared to the u.s system uh, i'm not sure that's true um uh, you could look at the, I mean, certainly if you look at Israel the last few years, they've been having trouble forming a majority government at all. And then famously, Italy has gone through many governments since World War II. Um, but I think if the, i, I I'm open to being corrected, but I think that's actually a function of um, the number of political parties that are in those countries. And so in the United Kingdom, you have, uh, you know, two political parties, you know, Tories and the other guys, <laughs> Tories and labor. And uh, I think the argument is that when the electoral system allows the, a plurality winner to win an election in a district, it generally means that you will only have two political parties. And we have those two political parties running against each other, you have stability. It's when you have proportional representation where you sort of allocate seats to multiple parties rather than sort of those head-to-head first past the post elections. The multiple parties are what create instability of the kind that the, you know, the questioner is worried about, where governments just rise and fall over and over again.
4: And I have no, uh, no official position on the parliamentary. I see no reason why it couldn't be done. Of course, it would require a totally new uh, state constitution and convention in order to do something like that. Uh, I would just note, I, I, I would enjoy seeing um, Gavin Newsom doing the um, prime minister's questions. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think we'd all enjoy seeing more governors do more prime minister questions. Here's a, here's a, a fascinating question. With, uh, with the upcoming Dobbs decision, um, does anybody think that this will uh, swing the discussion in state constitutional law back to the state Supreme Court arenas? I think this question probably presumes that um, Dobbs substantially curbs uh, Roe v. Wade, but um, I, anybody want to take a stab at that? Maybe the way to frame that is assuming that the Supreme Court does substantially curb Roe v. Wade, to what extent will you see discussions of state constitutional law swing back to state courts?
3: I want to know what John thinks.
2: Yeah, no, I I think that's a good question, and I think that's inevitable. Um, It's just, I would say it's nothing to be afraid of. Um, Think about all the other uh, questions where the Supreme Court uh, has chosen to uh, not federalize an area, and some of these are life and death issues, like euthanasia. You know, we we allow the constitutional system to handle euthanasia or um, the death penalty right uh, is also prim- handled by uh, the states and uh, the criminal law and policing primarily handled by the states. So uh, I think it's nothing to worry about. Our state legal systems handle the most basic questions of life and death. I actually think the weird thing is that the federal constitution has been expanding so much to take these. Uh, matters into account. Uh, and so maybe I, I think it's right that people really uh, uh, care about abortion so much that they are going to right. focus on state constitutional law again. On the other hand, I, I predict, and maybe I'm wrong, but I predict that when state constitutional law goes, I'm sorry, when abortion goes back to the states, if that's what happens, maybe the whole thing just becomes less political and um, people will fight the political battles in the states through the political process more than the courts, and they won't even ask their state constitutions to handle it. They'll just handle it through regular legislation like we do a lot of other matters.
1: Luke, thoughts on that?
4: No, I, I mean, all, all of that <laughs> makes a lot a lot of sense to me. Um, I, you know, I, I think that whenever you know, we're talking about, um, you know, these sort of issues, uh, <laughs> there's a certain irony. I, 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 that, that comes to mind is when you see occasionally really good, uh, sort of, uh, non-delegation decision, for example, pops to mind from the Pennsylvania Supreme Court a while ago, um, where they, they found uh, the Pennsylvania Workers' Compensation Act uh, violated the non-delegation doctrine and, and, and incorporating by reference uh, standards from the American Medical Association or something, like, something to that, that effect. Uh, but, you know, it was, it was not for naught that it was, uh, you know, a, a case in, in which, uh, you know, doing so, there, there was, um, um, you know, pr- Sort of a pro labor <laughs> uh, um, angle to that 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 case, and so you know, I, I, I almost wonder. If uh, you're, you're more likely to get, in some of these states, uh, some positive developments um, in, in terms of uh, the, the sort of issue areas we're talking about separation of powers, uh, if, if, if issues are raised in, in a context uh, where you know, sort of left of center, uh, uh, more progressive minded judges might, uh, might as a substance of matter like the outcome more i mean so i don't know i'm i'm totally speculated i'm I, I don't know if i have anything specifically to say about the dobbs decision but you know john's speculation makes sense and and i, I would just float it, w- it would be interesting to see i mean if if state courts are more likely at some point to you know roll back on say deference doctrines if presented with uh, facts where maybe it's not a regulated industry pushing back against regulation or but it's in some other context that's maybe more sympathetic to their their associations.
1: Well, we're up against the hour here. We got one last question. Come in, Lou. Wait, can
3: I say uh, one thing on, on the one we just- We, please, we just yes. talked about? Um, I, I'm a state constitutionalist. And so that means that I, I favor two things. One is uh, state rights. Uh, and, and that's because two, I think it favors individual liberty. Uh, it allows self-determination for the states and the citizens of those states. So in general, anytime something no longer is federalized and it reverts back to state discretion, I think that's a good thing. It allows for self-determination in states. It allows for democratic experiments. Uh, and, and it, as I said, potentially, it allows for enhanced individual liberty because a state can exceed the federal floor. So if there's no federal floor at all, states are totally at liberty to d- define that whatever individual right you're talking about as, as highly and maximally as they want to, potentially. So I think that it's potentially a good thing um, I, obviously, if you live in a state that decides not to favor that individual liberty, that's a problem. But I have to look this from, you know, a state's rights perspective and a California perspective. And if the, the United States Supreme Court decides to get out of an issue, that that ultimately inures to the benefit of California, I think.
4: And you, and you have the right to move with, vote with your feet as... Exactly. So.
3: Exactly.
1: And, and a lot of you Californians have voted with your feet to my home state of Tennessee recently. Not that I'm... <laughs> I thought it was Texas. Everybody category. was fleeing to. Uh, we get we get a lot of them too. Wow, oh. look, this nice last last question here. Uh, the new trailer for Top Gun Two recently dropped. How pumped are you? That question is obviously for Luke Icebox. Wake, Luke. What do you have to say for yourself?
4: Have it, Ice Man. I I've been informed. <laughs> no, no, no. You, you are Icebox. Now Icebox. And yeah. I'm the wingman. Icebox Iceman. is so much better than Ice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, I. I I, you know, I, I showed the trailer to my son. He, he's pumped about it. There's, there's, there's airplanes. What, what's not to like? So.
1: <laughs> well, I thought it was questionable that of all the 60 year old pilots they'd let continue to fly. They chose the guy who killed his Rio and barely top, graduated from Top Gun and suffered from severe PTSD in one of the key uh, dogfights of the Cold War. But, you know, that's not <laughs> what any, that's not the opinion anybody brings me on the air for. So it's still going to be an
3: awesome movie.
1: Oh, for sure. I think that uh, closes it on our end. Thanks for hosting us. Um, I know I enjoyed
0: another lively panel. Back to you, Jack. Of course. Thank you, Brandon, for hosting. And a big thank you to all our panelists today for lending us your time and expertise. And thank you to our audience for tuning in as well. You can check out our website at regproject.org or follow us on any major social media platform at FedSocRTP to stay up to date. With that, we are adjourned.
2: (music)
1: Thank <music> you.